Great to see you in the house uh, today. And if you're watching online, thank you for joining us online as well. All right, we are wrapping up our series called Back on Track. Uh, we called it that because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get back on track in so many areas of our life, right? Back on track with school, back on track with working, maybe back in the office, some of you. Uh, back on track with just our relationships and certainly in our relationship with God. And so we decided to study through this series the prophet Samuel, who is one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. And the reason why we study Samuel is because Samuel's role was to help Israel get back on track with God. And we've learned a lot of lessons from Samuel already. A lot of things of how to get back on track with God. For example, we learned that it starts with prayer. Just like Hannah, Samuel's mother, prayed and surrendered her heart to the Lord. That's what it takes for you to begin to move toward God. It also takes uh, identifying your calling and what has God called you to, repenting from things that are holding you back and obeying the things that God is calling you to do and not ignoring those things. And then even last week, we talked about the importance of putting your past behind you. So today, what we want to do is wrap all that up with this one last message. And really, this is a call to action. And, and here's the main idea, that when you get back on track with God, when you have turned from some things and are, are walking in, his, in your calling and, and obeying God and you've got your past behind you and you're moving forward, when that does happen, people will notice. And then that is your opportunity to influence others to get back on track with God, right? To influence others to be right with God. And what we're going to find is that is exactly what Samuel does. Samuel was a man of great influence. And he leveraged that influence. He maximized that influence by helping all different kinds of people come closer to God. So I want you to take your Bible. We're going to look at that a little in detail today. If I've done my job right, you're going to have a strategy of how to get, how to influence others, how to maximize your influence one of the people in your life uh, this week, okay? So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19. While you're turning there, let me just kind of catch up to speed on what's happening. Samuel has anointed David, uh, the next king of Israel. We looked at that last week. And really from this point forward in the story, it all focuses on David. David is the key figure in the story moving forward. And David became wildly popular after he defeated Goliath, that great giant. And very shortly after that, David is promoted to the head of Saul's army. And so now he's leading all these military campaigns. And obviously God is with him. Every time he goes to battle, he wins. Every time he engages in a military conflict, he comes out victorious and, and God is with him and the people are excited. They're winning again. They're, they've got a leader. God is with them. In fact, they're so excited they start singing chant songs, right? I don't know if it's like, we got spirit. Yes, we do. But it's kind of like that. They're chanting these, these songs of praise and excitement about David. In fact, in, we read one of them in, in chapter 18, verse 7. It says, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. All right? So they're excited. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. We're winning. Everybody loved that song except who? Yeah, King Saul. Not so much. Saul is not liking that. You know, there was a time when they were singing his praises. There was a time when he was the guy 
And now all of a sudden here comes this David character and now everybody's singing his praises, literally. And Saul becomes increasingly jealous. In chapter 18, verse 9, we read this. So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. Saul is in a dark place now. An evil spirit is tormenting him. He's overcome with a sense of jealousy that has now grown to hatred. And now all he can think about is killing David. He, he needs David dead. He needs David out of the way. He is fixated on David's capture and death. And by the way, this isn't just something in his own mind that he's thinking about. He's now telling everybody else about it. When you get to chapter 19, which is our chapter we're looking at today, verse 1, look at it. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. Now this made no sense to anybody in the kingdom. After all, it was David that was winning, right? It was David that had God's blessing and Saul wants him dead. I mean, he's literally putting a hit out on David and even Saul's family is trying to dissuade him, trying to redirect him, try to calm him down. But it is no use. Saul is fixated and committed to finding and killing David. And so in this chapter, we see David on the run. He is, he is wanted, dead or alive. He is on the run. He doesn't know who he can trust. He doesn't know who is, who's going to report him to Saul. He doesn't know who he can turn to. And the only person he can think of is to find Samuel. Now, Samuel is an old man at this point. Samuel's service has long since passed. He's really toward the end of his life. And David runs to Samuel. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 18. So let's look at it together. This is God's word. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel in Ramah. And told him everything Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel left and stayed at Naoth. And it was reported to Saul that David was at Naoth in Ramah, and he sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they also started prophesying. And when they reported to Saul, he sent other agents, and they also began prophesying. So Saul tried again and sent a third group of agents and even they began prophesying. Now stop right here for just a minute. Uh, what is going on here? This is, this is kind of a strange story. In fact, this is one of those stories that kind of gets skipped over when you're kind of looking at the story of Samuel. Many times we don't hear about this. It's a strange story, a lot of moving parts. But here's what I want you to see. If you back up from it, what you'll notice that Samuel is dealing with three groups of people here. He's dealing with this group called these prophets. He's dealing with David. And he's dealing with these assassins sent by Saul to take David out. All right? All three. And, and the common denominator is Samuel is dealing with each one. Now, I think from this, we can take away that what I'm, what I'm going to be calling here the three circles of influence that there are three kinds of people you're going to interact with this week. 
that are represented here in this story and how you can maximize your influence in their life. Okay? So, uh, hopefully you're taking notes. You can draw this little diagram with me, all right? Here is you, all right? Do you like that? High artistic quality, folks, right here. All right, this is you. And the first circle of influence are what we would call the people with whom you have community, all right? The people you have community. Now, I'm not saying the people in your community, like your favorite barista or, or your, the person that does your dry cleaning, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the people with whom you have community, the people close to you, the people in your inner circle, the people that you run with, the people that you know, and the people that know you. This is the place where you can have great influence. Again, we're talking about influence, how you maximize your influence. And we start there with the inner circle of the people that you do life with. This is where we start with Samuel. Samuel was living in a community of prophets. In fact, he was living in a place called Naot. Naot, the word Naot, Hebrew word, actually means small dwellings or compound. So Rama or Rama was the, the name of the village, his hometown, but just outside of that village was this small little kind of kibbutz-like thing. They would probably call it that today. A small little communal gathering of dwellings in which he lived with these prophets. Now, when I say prophet, a lot of people think prophecy, prophesying. Oh, you're talking about telling the future. Not necessarily. These prophets weren't so much fixated on telling the future as they were just praising God and celebrating God. In fact, if you want to put in the margin of your Bible there, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5, we've seen these prophets before. Earlier on in chapter 10, Saul encountered some prophets coming away from the, the place of worship. And it says that they had, check this out, they had harps and tambourines and flutes and lyres. In other words, they had these instruments and they had just been praising God and they're continuing to praise God. So these prophets were, were men that were set apart to praise God, to worship God, and to speak for God. And now they're living in this compound, this little kibbutz here, with the prophet Samuel. And Samuel is training this next generation. This would be like Samuel's seminary, right? Or, or Samuel's leadership academy. Or, or literally the first residency program in the Bible, all right? They're literally living together and Samuel is raising up the next generation of prophets. You're going to find this later on in the Old Testament. Another prophet named Elijah had a school of prophets that he trained. In fact, uh, later on in, in David's life, King David's life, he'll be confronted by a prophet named Nathan. And we don't know this, and so this is my own imagination, but it's possible that Nathan could have been one of the students in Samuel's school that was being trained to be a prophet in his moment of time. So here is Samuel. He's living with these people, he's in community with these people, these prophets, and what's he doing? He's investing in them, he's training them. Key word here is invest. If you want to have incredible influence in the people of your inner circle, the best way to do that is to invest in them. You maximize your influence when you invest your life in the people in your inner circle. This could be people that are your friends. This could be people, obviously, in your connect group at church. 
It could be people that you work with or people that you know closely. Uh, certainly, this starts in your own family, right? Investment starts in your own family. In fact, let me just get a little audience participation part of the talk here. Uh, hands up if you came to Christ at year 18 years old or under, 18 years old or under, raise up your hand if you came to Christ during that time frame, all right? Look around, that's a lot of people. That's probably the majority of people here, 18 years and younger. Now, statistically speaking, of those that come to Christ 18 years and younger, it is due to the influence of a parent or a grandparent. Is that true in your life? A parent or a grandparent. Now, that underscores the point that it is the influence of parents starting at home, starting in your immediate community, in your immediate family. You investing in your children spiritually has a lasting influence on their life. What does that look like? Well, when you read the Bible together, when you memorize scripture together, when you talk about spiritual things, when you serve God together, when you worship together. This is why we do what we call family worship, where we include children in the worship service. That's not just for convenience. That's on purpose because we believe that as you model for your children how to worship, then they will grow up being worshipers. So this is really, really important. It starts at home. In fact, I got a text not too long ago from a pastor out of state I've been challenging him to disciple the men in his church and he started discipling men and then ladies uh, started discipling ladies and so they've got this movement going on in his church and he's fired up, he's constantly blowing up my phone with what God's doing in his church and he sent me this picture. This picture is from a man that he discipled and this man sent him this picture because that is his son and his wife I think is behind the tree there across the street inviting their neighbor to come to church with them on Sunday. And he was so fired up because he was growing and now he was influencing his own children to walk with God. And so this pastor had to send it to me and it was so excited. And he said, this is the impact we're making. See, when you invest in people, it leaves an incredible impact on their life. So here's a, here's a big question for you, just thinking about this circle right here. Who are the people that you're investing in right now? Who are the people that you're investing? I have, a, I have a, a man that has invested in my life. And every time I call him or talk to him, you know what he asks me? Craig, who are you discipling? Craig, give me the name of your men. Who are your men that you're investing in right now? And I, I know when I get the call, when I see it come through, I better have some names, right? Because he expects me to have some men that I'm investing my life in. Listen, who are your people? Who are your people? Who are you investing in right now so that they are gonna be walking with God because of you? And if you don't have anybody, that's where you start. Start with your inner circle. Start with the people you know, people that you can invest your life into. All right, the second uh, group is, uh, is what we would call not just the people in community, but also the people in crisis. All right, the people in crisis. Now, of course, in Samuel's life, he had someone to come to him that was in crisis. And that, of course, was David. David was in crisis. David was running for his life. Everyone's looking for him. Saul has his agents out there searching every cave and every dwelling, trying to find him. And David was in a crisis mode. And of course, this begins kind of this dark season in David's life where he spends a lot of years just on the run, constantly looking over his shoulder like a fugitive. Uh, running from this crazy king that's trying to kill him. 
And it really caused David to, to cry out to God. In fact, there's many psalms that are written out of this period in David's life. This dark season of running from this evil man and crying out to God for help. There, there are probably about almost a dozen psalms that are written from David's life during this time period. One of them is Psalm 59. Psalm 59. This is what it reads in verse 1. Rescue me from my enemies, my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Rescue me from evildoers and save me from men of bloodshed. You can hear him. God, help me. God, God, save me. God, God, do something, right? You hear the, the panic. You hear the urgency, the cry for help. David, when he was in that mode, he ran to Samuel. And I believe that Samuel encouraged him. I'm sure David had lots of questions like, well, here's what Saul is doing and why is this happening? If I'm supposed to be the next king, why is he trying to kill me? And I thought God was with me. Why is God allowing this to happen in my life? And should I fight him? Should I run? Should I hide? What should I do? How long is this going to last? I mean, I'm sure he had a lot of questions, right? But I think Samuel just kept directing David back to the Lord. The Lord is your strength. The Lord is your help. The Lord is your stronghold. I think it was Samuel that did that. I think Samuel spoke that into his life. And the reason why I think that is because you begin to hear this in David's Psalms. In fact, at the end of Psalm 59, that very Psalm that we just read, this is how he concludes. But I will sing of your strength and will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning, for you have been a stronghold for me, talking about the Lord, my refuge in my day of trouble. See, David was learning in these hard seasons to run to God and to find refuge and strength and help in the Lord. Where did he learn that from? I think he learned it from Samuel. I think Samuel was teaching him and coaching him and encouraging him to do that. Now listen, just as Samuel encouraged David that you have the same opportunity. If you have people around you that are in crisis, what they need is for you to encourage them, all right? You invest in those with whom you have community. You encourage those who are in crisis. This, you know people that are in crisis around you. They're all around you. People that you work with, people that are neighbors, people that are going through surgery, people that are going through divorce, people that are are brokenhearted over the loss of a loved one. You know people, there's a lot of crisis, folks, out there right now. There's a lot of crisis. And crisis many times is a way that God gets our attention. You see this all the way through the Bible, that God sometimes will allow crisis in our life to, to move our hearts back toward him. In fact, I've said it many times before, oftentimes people come to a crisis before they ever come to Christ, right? It's through the crisis that they learn, I need the Lord in my life. I've got nothing to solid to stand on. And, and that's when the gospel becomes, uh, becomes hope for them and help for them. And really, until they hit a crisis, they're fine just the way they are. But when they hit a crisis, that's when their heart opens. It's like a window of opportunity opens, and they're ready to hear and receive the gospel. And so here's the big question. Who is in crisis around you? That is an opportunity for you to reach out and encourage them in the name of Jesus. And by the way, I've been seeing you guys do that a lot lately. 
I've heard lots of stories, multiple stories over the past probably four to six weeks. I have heard, I'm, I'm thinking three or four different times stories where you have encountered somebody that you know that is in crisis. Some of them have lost loved ones. Some of them are going through a dire need. And then you will bring it uh, to us and say, hey, here's this friend and, and they don't have any place uh, to do a funeral service. So they don't have anyone to care for them and they're in this crisis. So they need help in this situation. And then uh, as a church, we just partner together to help rally around that person and love on them and encourage them in the name of Jesus. Folks, that's what churches do. That's who we are. That is our calling and that is our joy and our delight to do that that. And, and listen, when you begin to f- look through the lens of crisis, you're beginning to look through the lens of where God is at work. Uh, many times I'll pray, Lord, help me just put on glasses and see people through the lens of who is in crisis. If I could do that, then I would see God's working here, and God's working here, and God's working here, and here's my opportunity to influence them. How do I do that? I influence them by encouraging them in God's word. Sometimes, folks, it's just taking a meal by. Sometimes it's slipping your arm across their shoulder and saying, hey, let me just pray for you. Sometimes it's taking them by the hand in their grief and in their tears and saying, let me share with you a verse that's really ministered to me when I've gone through times like this. And you speak God's word into their hearts and their lives. I'm telling you, you will never, ever know the impact that that makes. So you maximize your influence when you encourage people in crisis around you. Now, let me, give you, let me give you one more. We have people in community. We have people in crisis. Let me give you one more. And that is people in the culture, right? People in the culture. Now, when I talk about culture here, what I mean is that people that you know, they don't really have any spiritual interest at all. They're not really interested in spiritual things. If you try to talk about what God's doing in your life or invite this person to church, they'd probably slam the door in your face or they would make fun of you or a little bit or resist you. Sometimes these folks are very hostile to the God. I don't want to talk about that. Don't talk to me about spiritual things. I don't have any interest in that. We're not going to talk about that. And they would just shut you down because they don't have any interest. There's maybe even some hurt or some hostility within them that resists the things of God. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about people in the culture. And certainly Samuel faced some hostile people in this story. He certainly had the prophets with whom he had community. He had David in crisis, but he also had these assassins, right? These wicked men who were coming to do a wicked deed by taking out God's man. In fact, he didn't just deal with one set. He dealt with three uh, sets, three waves of these assassins that were coming to find David and to kill him and to take him. And, and it's a strange thing because every time that they got close to getting to David, then the prophets are singing and worshiping and celebrating God. And those assassins come to kill him, just start tapping their foot. And then they start whistling and then they start kind of doing like this. And then they're, they're, now they're praising the band was awesome and they're just like praising they're celebrating they're praising God and then they go all the back to Saul and they go, did you get him no man but the worship was fantastic oh send another one and same thing happens they start getting there and they they start being overcome by the spirit of God man that's they're praising God they go back three times What in the world is happening here? By the way, let me just say, this is an anomaly in the Bible. In fact, 
I'd love for somebody to show me another example where this happened anywhere else in the Bible. I can't find it. Where, where an evil man intent on doing an evil deed is overcome by the Spirit and starts to praise God and then goes home. I've never seen that. This is the only place in the Bible where this happens. And so here is Saul. He's like, man, I guess if you got to do a job, you got to do it yourself, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down there and I'm going to take him out myself and show these guys. And so we pick up uh, the story here, verse 22. Look at it. Verse 22. And when Saul himself went to Ramah and he came to a large cistern at Secu and asked, uh, where are Samuel and David at Naot uh, in Ramah, uh, uh, someone said. So he went to Naot in Ramah and the Spirit of God also came upon him. And as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naot in Ramah. And Saul then removed his clothes and also prophesied before Samuel and he collapsed and lay naked all day and all night. And that is why they say is Saul also among the prophets? You know, what's, what's going on here? I mean, here's Samuel, he, I mean, Saul, he, he is headed to go get David and he's going down there and all of a sudden he just kind of becomes overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and he's celebrating, he's singing. Again, prophecy doesn't mean telling the future, it just means praising God. So he's praising God, he's overcome with it all. He goes down on his face. It says he stripped himself for 24. Some uh, say that maybe what this means here is, is because being naked in Jewish culture would be, um, be an abomination or at least it'd be an embarrassment. So maybe what this means is stripping off his royal robes. That's quite possible. And then he lays down on the ground for 24 hours. Now, people would read that and go, man, Saul, man, he had this encounter with God and he's changed. And I would say, yes and no. Yes, he had an encounter with God. No, he wasn't changed. In fact, if you keep reading, he's back on the rampage 24 hours later doing the same thing he was. So, so what's happening here? What's happening is that God is intervening to literally put Saul on the ground for 24 hours so that David could escape. God was intervening to protect David in a very unusual way. Now, I want you to see something here that's really important. This is very, very important. And this is going to help some of you. At the core of Saul's hostility toward David That hostility is not uh, only because of jealousy. Certainly he is jealous. We've already seen that. That's really more the symptom. If you dig a little deeper down, what is at the core of his hostility, the anger, the rage, the fixation on killing David, what is at the core of that is that Saul was rejecting God's chosen one. God had chosen David and Saul didn't want him. He did not want David to be king. He did not want David to rule. He'd already been told that the, the kingdom was taken out of his hands and given to another. He already knew that, but he did not want to let go because David now was a threat to his lifestyle. And so he was rejecting God's work. He was rejecting God's chosen one. And that's why he was so hostile. Now listen, the same is true today. The people that are angry with you because you're a Christian. 
people are mad at you or reject you or hostile toward you because of your Christian faith, they're not just mad at you. They're rejecting the chosen one. They're rejecting Christ, the one who came through King David's line, the ultimate chosen one, the Messiah. They're rejecting Jesus. And yeah, they're okay with Jesus as long as he's benefiting them in some way, but they do not want Jesus to rule their life. They don't want Jesus to call what they're doing sinful or that they need to repent of that or they need to turn from that. They don't want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. They do not want that. He is a threat to their way of life, their lifestyle. And so they reject him wholeheartedly. And if they're rejecting Jesus and have hostility in their heart toward him, then they will have it toward you because that's who you represent. And that is what's happening here in this story. It's a much deeper issue. Saul's angst is not with Samuel. His angst is not even with David. It's with God. That's who his angst is with. And what I want you to see is how, did, how does Samuel influence this guy? that is this hostile. How does he do it? He, this is an amazing thing. In fact, when I saw this, I just like backed up and kind of scratched my head, all right? Samuel does not say a word. Not one word. I mean, if, if it were you and me, I'd expect him to say, and Samuel rebuked Saul for doing this. Or Samuel said, Saul, knock it off. Or Saul, you shouldn't be doing this. Or appeal to him, Saul, why? Why do you keep doing this? Man, get your act together. Or Saul, here are 10 reasons why David's the right guy and you're the wrong guy. And I'm trying to persuade you to come over. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't talk to him. He doesn't challenge him. He doesn't confront him. He doesn't appeal to him. He doesn't lecture to him. He, he doesn't run from him. He doesn't avoid him. He just stands his ground and he lets God do the work in Saul's heart. He lets God do the work. And that is a lesson for us. Listen, when you're dealing with maybe a family member or a coworker or somebody in your life and you're trying to share gospel and they always shut you down, they always have some snarky thing to say about Christians or whatever the case may be, don't take that personal, all right? That's not on you. They have a deeper angst with, with Jesus. And it's not up to you to persuade them. In fact, they're not gonna be persuaded by your argument. If you get mad and argue and get defensive, that's not going to persuade them. They're not going to be persuaded by your Facebook post, all right? That's not going to help things, all right? Enough with that, all right? What should I do? Uh, do like Samuel and, well, here it is. I'm going to write it down. Wait and pray. That's what you do. You wait and you pray. You pray for God to move in their life. Pray God intersect this person. God, open their hearts. God, soften their hearts. God, turn them to you. God, bring other Christians in their life. God, somehow and in some way, get their attention. If you have to put them on the ground, God, where they have nowhere else to go like you did Saul, do whatever it takes so that their heart would turn to you. And then you wait. And then when God does that work, then you are there to encourage them and to help them. Think about these three circles of influence. If you want to maximize your influence, then you're going to have to engage all these kinds of people. You have people like this in your life this week. This week you're going to interact with people in your community. Who are you investing in? Uh, people in crisis, who are you encouraging? People that are in the, the culture, that are hostile toward it, how are you praying intentionally for them and waiting on God to move in their life? This is how you have a life of influence. 
just like Samuel. The last time we see Samuel is in chapter 25. This is the last time he steps off the pages of Scripture. In chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him by his home in Ramah. Samuel died, they buried him in his hometown. That's all that they say about him. Oh, and they also say that the whole nation mourned for him. His influence permeated the whole country. Think about that. He was a man of great influence. Not because he was a great intellect, not because he achieved a lot of great things, not because he was a great leader. He was a man of influence because he was a man of God that loved the Lord and invested in people and comforted people and prayed for people. And you can do that too. Let me just remind you with this. When you step into eternity, the moment you step into eternity, nobody is gonna care what business you were in, how much money you made, where you lived. Nobody's gonna care about that. The only thing that will matter is your relationship with Jesus and how you influenced people to Jesus. That's the work we must do now. And don't allow the hobbies or the hang-ups or, or the, the pressure of life or work to diminish you from that single task. Because in that task of walking with God and pointing people to him, that is how you have influence that will last. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? You may say, Craig, I, I'm unsure of my own walk with God. And I want you to hear very carefully what I'm about to say. This is the gospel. The good news is that you were created to know God in a deep and personal way. But you have sinned against God. We all have sinned against God. We've lost our way. We've gone our own way. And we can't find our way back. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And in our moving from God and away from God and deserving judgment for the sin in our life, God sent his own son Jesus to reveal the Father to us and to die on a cross as payment for our sin, for your sin and for mine. What separates you from God is your sin and Christ paid for it in full on the cross. That's why he came. That's why he died on the cross. He was paying your sin debt because he loves you and he sought to redeem you and bring you back into fellowship with him. Jesus died on that day. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And even now, he offers you a chance to turn around, a chance to come back to God, to get back on track with God through faith in Jesus. Not be, by being good or being religious, but by simple faith and asking Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you and to make you right with him. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, the book of Romans says. Have you done it? Has there been a moment in time when you asked Jesus to come into your life and to forgive you? Just seated right where you are, if you're like, Craig, I'm just unsure. I don't know for sure. Well, you can leave here knowing for sure. John wrote 
These things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. So listen, I want to lead you in a simple prayer of faith. And if, you're, if right now you sense the Spirit of God tugging at your heart, then you just pray this simple prayer with me. I'm just going to kind of lead you through it. Just right where you're seated. Just bow your head. And right, start off just telling God and confessing your sin to Him. Saying, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. I know what I've done. Just tell Him that. Now tell him you believe that Jesus died on a cross for you and rose again from the dead. And you're putting your hope in him. Now ask him to forgive you and to clean you on the inside. Tell him you are turning from your old way of life to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus. Thank him for his great love for you. Father, I thank you that you have written all these things down for us so that we can know you and walk with you. And Lord, I thank you for those, even today, even in this room, who have for the first time come to place their faith in you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for all of us this week as we go back to school, back to work, back to the pace of life. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women of influence that invest our lives in others intentionally while we have time, that we comfort those that are in crisis, that we pray earnestly for those that are pushing you away, and that God, when we step into eternity, there would be those that are there because of our influence in their life. Lord, we don't want to waste our life. God, we want to use it up fully for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.